Okay, so we're live. Um, yeah. Not a nice week, I guess. No, contrary to that lovely background, where, which is a real background, not a virtual background. Uh, it is a real background. I need to turn yeah. off. Much nicer than mine and the kind of the, this kind of vampire-like lighting setup I have here, but it's the best yes. I could do on short notice. No, no, I understand. I mean, it's been a very, very busy um, week for everybody. Um, and yeah. of course, everything is Israel and now everything is Gaza. Um, mm -hmm. So that's what we're going to do. Everything old is new again. Yes, yes. Although this time has, it seems to have come back with a vengeance, right? Yeah. Well, everything is old as. Uh, was it last week that I I made the Slinky reference, or two weeks ago? Um, yeah, last week we were talking about Slinky. Yeah, this this is this is really the slinkiness of world events uh, in in action. You know, it, it, things move forward, but kind of circular, but they keep getting worse in a slinky like fashion as it tumbles down the steps yeah, I, think I don't know how much further i can, i don't know how much further i can take this metaphor but no i think that we should probably just move to some other uh you know gadget Planet? Um, but uh yeah i mean i um so let's just say first of all i mean i as you had been paying attention to israeli politics for a very very long time uh because of obviously uh you know identity associations and things of the kind. I mean, I, I obviously, um, you know, been very interested in it for professional reasons as well. And I think that over the years, I have seen bloodletting in various forms, in various sides of the conflict um, that have, you know, in every single case gave me pause and in almost every single case really just brought tears to my eyes. And I am not somebody that cries very easily. Uh, but I think that what we saw over the last uh six days seven days really today uh today would be the eighth day right so uh our ninth day was just something beyond anything that i um could have imagined i mean i think that in the 80s and 90s you had some of the taste of this kind of uh you know i mean i don't think that there's a tragedy tragedy is something that i actually reserve for things that are inevitable this is more of a massacre this is more of an outrage uh, of the kind that that obviously could have been avoided by people deciding not to do so um so i mean um i must say uh, as i feel the seasoned thick-skinned journalist or whatever the hell is that i am that uh that this one really took me by surprise what about you yeah uh, I mean, it's been a, yeah, I mean, so first of all, we're recording on Saturday, uh, it's live right now. So this is, it's exactly a week. Actually, when we were recording our last episode, um, events were just unfolding, right? We were just starting to hear the news of some kind of massive attack or something unprecedented. We were just starting to get those stories as you, you and I were recording last week. So it kind of, it, it makes a, it makes a mockery of, of trying to look ahead, right? Cause no one can see the future. And we always try to look ahead to the week, to the week to come. Um, and of course, last week looked very different than this week. I think what you just said is an interesting point, you know, in the eighties and nineties, maybe you could see something like this happening, but certainly not in the last 10, maybe even 20 years. Um, and that's part of the problem, right? Israel, uh, Israeli policymakers essentially convinced themselves and convinced their population that they could manage the conflict. Um, and after the Intifada in the early 2000s, the second Intifada, they 
they actually did something that almost no military force in the history of, of humanity ever accomplished, which was actually find a military solution to a political problem, because they did through a combination of intense military engagement in the West Bank in the early 2000s and the building of the wall slash fence slash security barrier, depending where you are along the line there, um, did succeed without coming to a political compromise or a political solution, did succeed uh, in fulfilling Israel's interests of having security uh, and maintaining their economic viability without having to really give anything up to the Palestinians. And in the last 15 to 20 years, as you say, uh, it's just kind of been status quo. Um, and so that's what makes this attack, aside from the human uh, aspect of it, which is horrifying, um, all the more from a political, geopolitical perspective, even more shocking, uh, because no one thought this was possible, exactly because the Israelis have found a way to manage Palestinian suffering uh, for all these years. And Hamas, it seems, did an excellent job deceiving Israel, Israel and its policymakers into thinking that this was not on the in the cards. I think that what is so, I mean, quite clearly there are two, two I think, two sides to story, but ultimately I think that they need to be computed together. So um, the human toil uh, of Saturday morning in Southern Israel is something that I must say that um, absolutely overwhelmed me. I mean, for one thing, because, um, you know, I think that the story that you will hear is that, well, there were people one knew and people, I mean, and, and as a matter of fact, I mean, you know, there, there are enough names, including some colleagues of ours that have friends in the area and, 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 and so on. But I think that then there is this other part of the, of the story, which doesn't come down to people, you know, but really just a sense of, um, you know, I, I read somebody saying sort of today or yesterday, well, it could have some some Israeli commentator uh, who lives now back in the US saying uh, it could have been me. And I must say that it could have been me is something that to me has never really been very convincing. In fact, I always thought sort of it could have been me as an usurpation of identity that is used for political convenience. So, you know, it could have been me that died in those, you know, those massacres. Or it could have been me that have walked into the, the concentration camp. That for me was not really the issue at all. But what did happen was that um, I saw these pictures of parents, uh, mothers and fathers. Uh, you know, there is one of this, this mother, these two redhead children, one nine month old and the other one, I think, four years old, which are essentially the, the ages of my children, uh, trying to sort of protect these two kids uh, with her bare hands. And then, you know, 24 hours later, as Netanyahu is showing the absolute brute that he is, the exactly the same kind of images repeating themselves on the other side of the border in which you see sort of a mother in the Shifa hospital being brought a six-year-old child dead uh, in, in just to give him a last kiss and she's, I mean, distraught is obviously the wrong word uh, for this. This is, is way, way beyond sort of the last calamity. I mean, you can see something that I think that every parent understands, which is the terror of preferring to be dead than to be mm. in this kind of situation. And I think that these are two things that to me sort of first completely overwhelmed the political uh, because I think that it, it, it's not a matter of the human scale at all. It doesn't have to do with the human scale. It has to do with the, the raw, sort of the raw brutality of the fact 
uh, that just repeats itself in this like five days over and over and over and over and over again. You just keep hearing about parents sort of finding their dead sort of grown-up children or young children and like, you know, and so on and so forth. And of course, I mean, you know, the claim of the left and pro-Palestinian forces that, well, this is something that Palestinians had been doing, you know, day in and day out for God knows how long. Uh, and, 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 you know, indeed, indeed, I think that the thing is that there is, there is a sort of sense of absolute egregious brutality that at some point has to overflow sort of the political calculation. And then I think that the next step is when you return back to the political question, well, then it's the one that you just asked or the one that you just posed, which is it has so many legs. It moves in so many directions. It has questions about the geopolitical makeup. It has questions about the region. It has very clearly questions about what is the meaning of Israel for Jews, especially under a set of governments that had been you know, particularly around Netanyahu and the different cronies that he has had as he moves farther and farther to the right, that have essentially made the, you know, Jewish blood the excuse for Israel. So Jewish blood will not be sp spilled, therefore move to Israel, which can protect you. I think that this is actually not just sort of a shattered image, a shattered Fata Morgana for Israelis. This is something that I think the Jewry around the world uh, should take note of. I mean, Israel cannot protect itself, let alone sort of play this game of, you know, we are here really just the overlords of Jewish safety across the globe. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the big question I've been asking myself this week from a political perspective, because that's that's you know that, that's the creatures we are and there there's the, hum, the the human the human emotion the human aspect can only go so far i think you rightly rightfully pointed out um i was looking at i, I did not do doom scroll too much i kept myself from doom scrolling too much but of course as the first images were coming out of those attacks from the music festival from other kibbutzim in the area and they're really horrifying pictures and videos and i didn't even look at the worst of them um, but then you have to always remember that those are the images that happen on the other side all the time. Um, and no human life should be put above or below another. And it's all awful um, on all sides. Um, and it's, 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 it's animalistic on all sides when these kinds of things happen. Um, so you can, in a, in a way, there's almost not much more to talk about from the human perspective. And you're kind of left with the political ramifications, the geopolitical ramifications. But where the human and the political and the moral and the political match up for me is you would hope, you would want that in the aftermath of an event like this, that the trauma, and I think one thing that's we've missed in media coverage, the one thing we miss always in these events is we forget the impact of trauma, that people are traumatized. And when people are traumatized or in shock, literally in shock, uh, people are not thinking clearly, people do not make the best decisions. People are not thinking about what the best uh, outcome, forget about the other side, whoever the other side is, but the best outcome even for them, for their own best interests are. And then that's when very bad decisions are made uh, for everyone involved. And you would hope that that trauma would lead to empathy, that the trauma would lead to compassion, that the trauma would lead to you realizing, hey, wait a minute, this awful thing that has befallen me is something that people around me and people in other contexts 
are feeling and have felt and have experienced. And you would like that the outcome to be empathy and compassion, but it's not, it's revenge, it's anger, um, it's retribution. All perfectly fair in the, in the span, in the spectrum of human emotions. Um, but it leads me to wonder, and again, this is where, where I mean the human meets up with the political, compassion and empathy are the basis of universal human rights. It's the basis of the liberal values that we live in. It's the basis of the modern world we live in, modernity. Um, and if we're not going to exercise empathy and compassion, and we're going to succumb to the anger and retribution and vengefulness, that the trauma creates, then we're back to a pre-modern time. Then we can throw out all of our, the values we live by, all the things that make our lives good, um, especially in a European context. And so what I've been asking myself this week is where, where does this leave Europe? You know, where does, where does this leave the liberal project? Um, if you see today and what's happened this week, very reasonable, educated, sensible people run to their tribal corners immediately if that's the, the, the gut reaction, then we can kind of say goodbye to everything that makes our lives good. Um, and so it really does keep, have me wondering, specifically in Europe. I mean, the U.S., of course, is also uh, tries to abide by or create a liberal sort of sense of the world. But the European Union and our podcast is about Europe and European politics. The European Union exists to be a post-national, post-tribal system where people of various languages and various, well, maybe not various faiths because it is a highly Christianized context, but there is space for everyone. That's the idea. That's the ideal. That's the aspiration. And if, if we're seeing a crumbling of that, as soon as, as soon as things get difficult, right? As soon as things get difficult, the very moment you need all of those values, those values go away. I really do ask myself, where does that leave us? What is the point of any of it? I think that one of the most, uh, I, I will say that, um, well, so there is there is a segue that or there is a, a sort of, a, there, there is a moment in between this sort of sense of horror that I was just describing, seeing, you know, parents, um, you know, trying to protect their children from the most bestial mm -hmm. brutality on both sides with their bare arms. In the moment in which sort of I begin to think again about the political, uh, and I and I go directly in the very direction that you're describing, um, one of the first things that happened coming out of that was seeing um, celebrations, celebrations right. of Muslim communities, mostly and some sort of left-wing allies across Europe. Uh, we saw it in the U.S. Dearborn was a particularly uh, nasty example of it. Uh, but there was quite a bit in Berlin, uh, Neukölln, obviously. Uh, there is quite a bit in uh, different parts of Europe, particularly uh, in Paris uh, and London. Um, now, I think that it's worthwhile distinguishing the sort of pre-Gaza bombing demonstrations and the post-Gaza bombing demonstrations, minimally with the post-Gaza bombing demonstrations. You can talk about people that really demonstrated against the bombing of a civilian population. But the people that went out to celebrate directly after the massacres, essentially, in the streets of our cities across Europe, were people that were essentially celebrating the massacre of children, mothers, and civilians. And I think that this is where, for me, 
the question came to bear. And, you know, I'm no fan of somebody like Tilo Sarracin. Uh, I don't really have major questions about migration. I think that process of integrations take time. But I think that there is a question that we need, need to ask ourselves about those who are sitting out in the streets and celebrating the slaughter of babies, which, by the way, be that piece of news true or false, and there are a lot of questions as to the the, the veracity of, of that piece of information, that was what was circulating. What was circulating was something that was just so absolutely beyond the pale in terms of the exercise of violence, um, that I think that even if you had, you know, sympathy for the question of, you know, Palestinian rights or Palestinian statehood or something of the kind. I know it's becoming very dark here. I just realized. So yeah, you need some. some yeah, light. Right. I mean, yes, it, yes. Is be it is becoming very dark in more than one way. Yes. Uh, so I think that many, many of this, um, you know, many of those people that are people that are essentially sharing with us the European, the European public sphere, um, you know, are people that are, are people are expressions of glee in the most incredible suffering of others um, that I cannot quite understand as belonging in any way mm. in the same polity as I do. Now I will grant you this much: um, I do have very clear memory of Israelis uh, going to uh, hills above Gaza and celebrating. I was just going to say that. Yeah, yes, I was just going to uh, say you that. You know, Gazans were being slaughtered by Israeli heavy weaponry. So just to make absolutely clear, I don't think uh, that this actually goes to one side of the one side of the conflict. I think that to boot, it was Europeans, European politicians that back then, as Israelis were celebrating the slaughter of Gazans, including children. I mean, we all probably remember the, the kids playing football on the beach that I were on the beach. Um, we had European politicians that were very happy to go to bat for like some of the worst habits of Israeli policy in Gaza. Uh, and, and we're I seeing that, that again. And we're seeing that again. So we're seeing that again. And I think that this is very, I'm very much with you. This is sovereign in a very, um, yeah, in a very unpleasant kind of way. Yeah, uh, it, it. I think we're. It, it's it's asking. To, I would like to expect more from the human condition, but I think that's probably asking too much because it really is asking to hold a number of competing uh, and conflicting thoughts and feelings at once. Yes, those who could who who celebrate the slaughter of children on any side should be condemned. But at the same time, we need to understand the kind of trauma that leads people to do that without justifying it. I think in moments like this, there's a problem with a, there's a, it's very easy to conflate understanding with justification. Right. And that's, that's always, a, it's always incredibly <laughs> important to always be able to understand why someone or a, a group or a country or whatever social kind of grouping we're talking about does something without justifying it. So you can, we have to understand why people would take to the streets and celebrate or why Israelis would take to the hills to watch their air force drop bombs on Gaza in the last, in the last round of hostilities or more than once without justifying that action, but to understand this, but that requires both 
rage and empathy. And those two feelings are very difficult to balance at the same time. Um, and it again, that's at the individual or at the societal sort of group on the, you know, on, on, on the, on the street, so to speak level, but it trickles up to our state institutions. And again, I don't know. I mean, Martin, my big question is like, where do we go from here? And again, from, you know, from that European perspective that likes to champion. And I do think there's something to the idea of liberal values. It's kind of hard to put your finger on it. It, it sometimes is mushy and it sometimes it's just nice political rhetoric, but there is something there. Um, but in moments like this, I, I just don't know. I don't know what, what good they are. You're muted. You muted yourself. Maybe it's for the best. Maybe it's for the best, actually. I mean, I, I think actually, so it's something that I was reminding myself as we were going into this conversation, which is, um, there are a lot of things that one dare is not say in Europe, right? I mean, we, I think that we, I don't know what we have for an audience, but I think it's worth reminding our friends and listeners that um, it's very likely that things that we say in this conversation put our livelihood and, and sort of general moral integrity in the European context um, at risk, right, to some degree. I mean, you are not free, essentially, to think this kind of questions in the space of European kind of good manners. Uh, so I am, I am on the one hand, um, incredibly displeased with the European response. I am mm. absolutely displeased with the sort of idiotic German approach to sort of unreasoned, uh, simply sort of standing in line with whatever the hell Israel does. And not only that, actually, even worse, as we saw this week, I mean, uh, with, with the Bernie Sanders story, which I will ask you in a second, uh, mm. Germany is really quite willing to tell Jews what is, you know, what is to be a good Jew. And, and of course, for the German state and German institutions, 90% of the time, it means lining up with Israel, uh, which is absolutely right. incredible. On the other hand, I mean, back to the point I made before, we're standing in the middle of a situation which sort of, you know, two kilometers away from my home, you have sympathizers of the Palestinian cause celebrating the slaughter of Jewish children. I mean, I, I have to say, uh, it's, it's not really sort of a buffet from where I want to have to, you know, pick up my fare. Um, and it seems that to some degree, you know, for all that Europe has and likes to say about itself, there is light now, uh, there it is. for all that Europe <laughs> likes to say about itself, for all that German institutions like to say about themselves, for all, you know, for all notions and, and, and sort of excitement about the idea of, of thinking through issues, the fact is that there is a, a very sort of very split ideological society in which I think that the kind of questions that I need to ask myself at a time like this um, are quite simply not quite allowed because they don't really fit one side or the other. Uh, so that is to say, I'm not allowed to sort of ask questions as to, you know, well, why the hell do we have essentially what is a terrorist, a terrorist set of, you know, set of ministers running Israel as a country? I mean, people like Smotrich, people like Ben Gvia, 
that had been involved in essentially terrorizing Muslim populations. I mean, Benguiel particularly, uh, he has actually, you know, he has actually uh, been condemned for some of these things. Uh, you know, these are questions that one in some sense is not allowed to ask. On the other hand, the fact is that we have a serious issue about, you know, the celebration of the death of Jews in a capital that has actually directed the death of Jews at a massive scale. Right. So but the difference has to be noted that one was the death of Jews as meted out by state authorities and state power. And the other is by a largely powerless, marginalized group for over which state authorities uh, ob observe, shall we say. I think that that's true. But I think that, you know, I mean, one of the things about Germany, I mean, France, France is a little bit of a different animal. And, and in that sense, I see it as a much more dangerous space uh, for a Jew. Uh, and I, it's something that I say for the first time. I mean, I have lived in France and, you know, I mean, I consider, you know, a space that I know really quite well. Uh, I never really would have said that France is anti-Semitic, although I think that things have begun to change over the last couple of years, maybe 10 years or so. Um, but I think that... <clears throat> For me, it's never really the question about the state power really exercising this kind of forces. I mean, the question for me has always been, and this also goes for the far right, uh, which um, which Germany and Europe is seeing sort of, you know, reemerge in rather unsavory ways. The question is, what kind of critical mass do you need to underpin it? What kind of critical mass do you need to underwrite it? And I think that there is enough of a critical mass across Germany of sort of a very virulent kind of anti-Semitism um, among the Muslim community uh, that is sort of emerging in sort of some very, very unsettling ways. I mean, you have seen probably just like me that there were sort of uh, stars of David painted in, in, in buildings around Berlin where, you know, Jews live. I mean, this is stuff that, I, you know, I think that one needs... But we don't, to know who, we, don't know who, we don't know who's behind those. We don't know who's behind those, I know. And I think that that's, that's a very fair point. But the, I think that the issue is that these things, this kind of like, this kind of things are now a possibility or are now actually a part of the political of the political makeup. My point is not that necessarily this was actually, you know, sort of Arab Muslims anti-Jewish really looking for. I, this is not my point. My point is rather that this sort of climate of tension is now among us, and we cannot quite escape right. it. Well, among us more. I mean, unfortunately, this has happened before. Uh, we know the script. We know something kicks off in Israel, between is Israel and the Palestinians in various ways, right? This is this is the formula. Something kicks off there. There's escalation. The news reaches, of course, quickly around the world. And then we know that there's the usual condemnations, solidarity with Israel from political leaders in Europe and from the West more broadly. There's then the street reaction. And we have Arab and Muslim populations who are very closely affiliated with the Palestinian cause and themselves suffer from a kind of trauma that leads to a catharsis moment when these kinds of things happen against Israelis. Um, that again, much like that feeling of anger and retribution that I mentioned on the Israeli side, as the result of this event, that same kind of crazy, irrational 
behavior happens on both sides, right? Because trauma is trauma. And then there's the protests, and then there's the reaction to the protests and these calls of how can this happen again and we need to ban it. And then we have, we kind of, we go from, from protecting one group, usually protecting Jews and protecting Israelis, especially in Germany because of the history of the Nazi regime, slips into from protecting one group to uh, pursuing another group. Uh, in the form of Islamophobia, and this is a this is a script that repeats over and over and over again. It's worse now; it gets worse, right? Mm. I was talking about like the slinky. We're just slinkying down the stairs here into some kind of hell, um, and it's worse because of how much more heinous this attack was, and now how much more heinous the retribution is from the Israeli forces. Um, but we've seen this. We know this script. We know how this goes. We know how this ends. We know how people react. You can you can write this script before it well, happens. I think, yeah, I mean, I think that this is something that to me also is absolutely breathtaking, which is that there is absolutely nothing that has been said by the, you know, by the Netanyahu machine that mm. sort of uh, really, you know, uh, uh, strays one single bit from the same crap tried on Gaza at least five or six times over the last 10 years with hundreds of deaths. I mean, right. you cannot possibly say that this has actually produced any positive results given what just happened in Israel a week ago. So the policy right. of Gaza has essentially failed, has essentially failed, and now has failed to the extent that it's absolutely inconceivable that the response to it would be just to repeat it. Right. Also this is this is what I this is what I mean by the by the by being guided by a sense of vengeance. You're you don't make the good decisions. And 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 to that point, you know, immediately the comparison to 9/11 was made and most people only looked at the casualty counts and people said, "Well, of course this is worse than 9/11 because if you look at it per capita, Israel's a smaller country, 1200 people dead there, mostly civilians is that many more times worse per capita than in America." But that's not the comparison that makes sense to me. The comparison that makes sense to me, that's the scary comparison is if, if we're going to say this is Israel's 9-11 moment, well, we know what the U.S. reaction was to the 9-11 attacks. Right. It did not end well. It did not accomplish anything. It caused more instability in the world, uh, more deaths, a lot of money being wasted. For what? And if yeah. we are going to draw that comparison, then we can only then lead to the logical conclusion that Israel's response will be just as poorly thought out. And we're seeing that already because military analysts will tell you there is no military solution to your point, right? You, okay, go into Gaza, destroy what you want to destroy, kill the Hamas fighters you want to kill, but then what, right? There is no, well, there yeah. is no military solution. This is very clear. I mean, I think that nonetheless, the question that has to be asked is a question that is not being asked, which is, I mean, to some degree, it's being pointed out by Israeli media, mostly Aretz and Time of Israel actually did publish stories on Netanyahu propping up Hamas, and they've done right. that over the last like two or three days. Um, I got like this 2021 deal that the Qataris had cut in order to do mm. a sort of fuel for cash uh, with Hamas. Um, you know, these are not small questions. I mean, to some degree, you know, I think that what needs to be done now is to understand the history of this catastrophe. 
right? I mean, we mm. need to understand sort of, it's not that we need to justify, we need to understand the history of this catastrophe, including, including, you know, Bengavia with all his settlers essentially going into Alaxa and praying there, breaking the protocol of like, I don't know, I mean, I think four or five or six decades making sure, you know, the agreement that Christians and Jews would not pray there, having essentially the police escort settlers, having the increase of troops that were pulled out of Gaza three weeks ago. This was said to us in interview by Eud by, uh, by Olmert, who we interviewed last week, uh, pulling platoons out of Gaza and bringing them to actually, you know, prop up the place where people like Bengvia and Smotrich have their political base. Uh, this kind of like thing, including unpreparedness, uh, including the fact that, you know, Netanyahu was very happy. And I mean, I think that this is not new to use, you know, Hamas in order to basically counter interact uh, Fatah and the and the and the and the, the the West Bank outfit all of these things become actually relevant because then at that point the question is not just one about you know resolving uh, or it's not one about uh, I guess um it's not one about uh, correcting, but it's one about foreclosing. And the question I think that needs to be asked here is not how is it that you deal with this when it happens. The question that ha has been asked for years, and I think failingly ultimately, is how do you foreclose these things from happening? Mm. It's quite clear, I think, uh, as of today, probably like by Saturday night was already very clear, that, that a wall is quite simply not enough. There is no wall. What we do know is that there is no security wall that is not bridgeable. If you're going right. to actually... Which is, a, which is a good reminder. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, if nothing else, if nothing else, I mean, you can talk about failures of security. You can talk about failures of intelligence. Talk about whatever you want. The fact is that there is no intelligence that is solid enough. There is no wall that is solid enough. And, and no, yeah. Netanyahu cannot be trusted with the security of the state and Netanyahu cannot be trusted with the, with, with the safety of Jews around the world. I mean, for close. And this is the prime, this is the prime minister who for a decade in and out of being in and out of office has tried to make himself not just the prime minister of Israel, but the prime minister of the Jews. Exactly. And yeah. as essentially and when 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 there were all those terrorist attacks in around 2015, 2014 in France, Netanyahu basically made a statement saying, Jews of France, you're, come to Israel where you'll yeah. be safe. We will protect you. France, Europe is not for you. France is not for you, uh, which is, has incredibly troubling implications. Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 and creates the, this, this, this dynamic. You were saying earlier about this hatred for Jews among Muslim populations or among people who are, are supportive or affiliate with Palestinian cause. But we have to understand what the role of the likes of Netanyahu have in conflating the Israeli and the Absolutely. Jewish yeah. uh, situ well, the, uh, identities. This is something that nobody really wants to hear. Nobody really wants to say unless you're Netanyahu, then you get to say it and sort of the European political class gets to clap at you. Uh, but the fact is that if if it is the case that Arab and or sorry, Muslim integrists are actually targeting Jews and conflating them with Israelis. It's because the Israeli political machine, particularly around the Ministry of, of, of Strategic Affairs, uh, who I never know if I never know if it's working or no, no longer operational, seems to come into existence and then disappear and then come back. Um, 
and people like the sort of the far right and the Likud are actually have spent decades conflating Judaism and Zionism. As a matter of fact, I mean, I like to call it the second occupation, the Israeli occupation of Judaism. You cannot possibly be a Jew unless you're a good Zionist. And it has become worse over the last 10 years. You cannot really be a good Jew unless you're a Likudnik. You cannot really be a good Jew unless you actually support the most egregious politics that are actually completely, essentially, as far as I'm concerned, incompatible with my basic experience of Judaism, which is Judaism in a diaspora, which is completely dependent, critically dependent on toleration, on, on essentially on ecumenism, on secularism, on a state that is not religiously or ethnically defined. So, right. so the point is, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot spend your day saying all Jews are essentially Israeli in, in potency and Israel is actually the ultimate faith of the Jew and at the same time turn around and go like, well, you know, you're attacking Jews uh, when you actually mean to be attacking Israelis. Um, right. I think, And I think this speaks to this understanding versus justifying. Right, to yes, understand I, why there might be, why there is that thought in so many people's heads. It's a hor horrible thought, but well, it's I there, have, and we have to understand why it's there. I mean, you know, I have absolutely no sympathy, uh, no sympathy uh, for, for anti-Semites, I mean, among other things, because right. my neck is usually on the line, uh, and now the neck of my yeah. children, right? Uh, so so this is not, this is, I, I mean, this is also the thing that is kind of crazy about the European life. Uh, which I think neither American Jews and certainly not Argentine Jews would, would have to deal with, which is even as a Jew, your first line in any conversation should be, I'm against, I'm against anti-Semites. I mean, how absolutely insane is the discussion, the public discourse of Judaism in Europe, that this is something that needs to be said before you can actually try to unpack the, the, the state in which you, I mean, can you can you just quickly tell the story of what happened this week with with Bernie Sanders and Despede? Oh. It, well, I, I had a, I got to I got to have a quick meet with Bernie Sanders, which was which was maybe that maybe the the the, the, the I, I won't call it comically relief, but the relief of the week a, a week a, such a dark week to just have uh, to get to um, you know have a quick hello to Bernie Sanders because he came to Berlin. He, he was traveling through Europe and spent a few days in Berlin. Uh, to promote his new book and i was at his press conference and then i was at his book talk in the evening um and i, I wasn't aware of this till it came up at the press conference and i was busy with all of my other kind of news i was following i wasn't really paying attention i was half paying attention to what other people were asking and then i followed up on it in the news later that uh, saskia eskin the co-leader of the social democrats uh nominally center left and, and saskia eskin is by social democratic standards today on the left side of her party, um, refused to meet with Bernie Sanders when uh, he was here. It's a bit un unclear, the details are still unclear, there's still some dispute what exactly that meeting was, if there was gonna be a meeting, if it was just a quick handshake on the, on the sidelines of his book talk event, it it's unclear, but whatever uh, the actual details, according to Saskia Eskin herself, uh, she canceled whatever the meeting was going to be because Bernie Sanders, in her mind, was not sufficiently pro-Israel enough. And uh, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but she basically said Bernie Sanders has had his chance uh, to essentially uh, atone for his equivocations between 
what Israel does to the Palestinians and what the Palestinians, or what I should say more specifically, more precisely, what Hamas has done uh, to Israeli civilians. He had his chance. He didn't take it. Uh, that's shameful. And uh, therefore, I'm not meeting with him, uh, which is not, which is, first of all, is insane for a German to tell a Jew what his position on Israel should be. But it's even more insane because it, it's absolutely false what Bernie, uh, what she was accusing Bernie Sanders of. And he repeated himself at this press conference and he's repeated himself many more times. And it really is disgusting to have to repeat himself. It, it kind of reminded me of the Barack Obama birth certificate moment where Barack Obama should have had no reason to show his birth certificate to prove that he was Bernie, American. Absolutely. Bernie Sanders should not have had to repeat his statements where he undeniably, unquestionably condemned, as he rightly should, Hamas's actions. And also said that that's not a, a blank check reason for Israel to then violate international law and do whatever it feels like doing in its understanding of defense. I think and, that what people do not know, but actually is kind of central to the German public sphere discourse, is that, um, you know, 80 years after Goering saying in Germany, I decide who is a Jew, uh, institutions and very often state apparatuses are still essentially involved in telling us what constitutes a good and appropriate Jew. Uh, and, uh, you know, and not only they will do it to sort of the little Jew in the street, that would be you and me to some degree, but they would actually do it to Bernie Sanders, right? You would have yeah. Bernie Who Sanders. is not only Jewish, but also must be constantly reminded, uh, is a first generation American, I believe, I, I, first or second, I'm pretty sure first, and whose many, many of his family members who were back in Europe were slaughtered in the Holocaust. Right. So, I mean, it is kind of remarkable because the thing that I, we have discussed this many, many times, I mean, this is precisely how philosemitism, which is that mobilizes this crap, is essentially the evil twin of anti-Semitism in a sense you know, the Jew of the anti-Semite is this sort of figment of the imagination, which is essentially demonic uh, and can do no good. And the Jew of the philosemite is essentially a Jew that is not human either. It's kind of angelic and can do no wrong. So the moment that you have even a Jew saying, look, I mean, there is a Jew doing something there that I don't quite like or something that is morally unacceptable or something that is illegal. Of course, the philosemitic the similar philosemitic actor jumps out and goes like, hey, there is no place for you here. You better set, right. stand in line and be, you know, be the Jew that we want you to be. Well, uh, what's wrong there is that whether it's anti or philo, it's objectifying, right? It takes yeah. the agency away from the person or the group that the person belongs to. They no longer have agency over their identity and who they express themselves as and how they think of themselves. They become the object of the imagination's gaze. Right. right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that this is this is a fair, uh, fair characterization. I mean, which, you know, belongs belongs uh, belongs to. Uh, well, I mean, I think that it, it should be it should be clear from from the form of public discourse. But I think that there is an added element, which to me is. Um, I don't know if dangerous is the word that I want to use here, but that it requires a much more aggressive response which is that what this does is essentially foreclose thinking. Thinking okay. is foreclosed. There is no more rational deliberation. There is no more reasons. We no longer belong to a market of idea. We've been locked out of the market of ideas. 
now there are certain ideological positions that you need to take. And this is a conversation that I have had very recently in a workshop of, on anti-Semitism in some or other institution I participate in, uh, in which, you know, I said, look, it's I have absolutely no religious commitments as a Jew, and I have absolutely no national identity to talk about. There is no nation that I recognize as a Jew you know, or as Judaism being being constituted of. And the answer was, well, then what is it to be a Jew? I mean, kind of angrily, the response was like, you know, what is Judaism then? But the problem is precisely that this is not a response that, number one, I can give. Number two, I am willing to give. I mean, you know, in this sense, this kind of problem, which is that something that has to evolve as a question and that has to evolve as an answer, and that, you know, it includes, you know, I was explaining today to my child what Yiddish is, and I was saying it's a type of German that all of my grandparents spoke, and maybe one day you learn it too. Um, you know, I would need to explain to somebody the proximity the proximity that I feel to German as being something that is constitutive of my Judaism. This is something that does not fit anywhere in this sort of, you know, give me a one-line clear explanation of what is a Jew. Anyway, I'm I'm straying a bit here, but I think that the point I'm trying to make is No, that... but I think what you the point you make about about the end of rational thought goes back to what I was saying about Rational thought is modernity. Rational thought is all we have that keeps us from going back to a, a, a pre-modern era of might making right, right? We need rational thought. We need to be able to engage with these controversial issues and not even controversial, just, just fundamentally contradictory issues that doesn't make one side wrong or right. Two things can be right at once. Well, and when you yeah. shut down rational thought, that's the end of liberalism. That's the right. end of the liberal project. Then, like, we can all pack up and go home. Right. There is a line that I like. I mean, I, I, I never quote these people, but I think that there is a line of Aristotle that is worth pointing to, which is that the, the mark of reason, I mean, in more or less words, the mark of reason is being able to hold two contradictory thoughts at once and not marry to one or the other. And I think that precisely the problem is that when you have a demand of ideological, of ideological loyalty or, a, you know, ideological consistency, that becomes an impossibility. Um, right. I think that in a case like this one, uh, the one where you know at hand, which is one that clearly is already kind of overflowing the streets of Europe and its political conversation. Um, I think that you know the question as to how is it that we grapple with these forms of violence, which cannot completely overlook the last 60 years of occupation, the absolutely incredible human cost that it has had for Palestinian families that might have absolutely no liking uh, for Hamas other than the fact that they're actually at least putting a fight against Israelis um, is something that cannot even be contemplated. And I think that it's essential, essential that we are able to, you know, understand the reasons, uh, <clears throat> not of murderers, but of people that might see murderers and still sort of have a thought of support. That has to be understandable right. to us. It's not enough to talk about evil. It's not about enough to talk about, you know, metaphysical metaphysical categories. It's very easy. It's a freaking cop-out to say that what yeah. we have is just evil. Yes, it is evil. I mean, in, in the experiential part, it's evil. But there is also political reasons behind it. 
Right. Um, this idea that things just happen out of in a vacuum or they come out of out of nothingness. Everything is part of a continuum, right? We need to right. understand where things place in a context, in a historical and a political context that we are all a part of. Yeah. Anyhow, I'm sure that this will not make us a lot of friends, but there you have it. I mean, I guess. I As, as Groucho Marx said, I wouldn't want to be part of a club that would have me as a member. I understand. I follow. Anyhow, it's time for me for to go for dinner. It's time for you to go for dinner. Um, I hope you can enjoy the, the green sort of less... Well, now it's a bit dark, but yes, I will. And we'll see each other yeah. again next week. We'll see what next week brings. Yes, indeed. Have a good night, Will. You too, Martin.